All right. Uh, hey, Toby. Hey, Darren. So uh, we're going to do this a little differently this week. This week is a bit of a, a somber week for us. We're actually coming off of, I guess, last week was when it officially happened. But the um, it there are seldom times when one feels like the things that you were talking about on an esoteric literary tech podcast <laughs> feel like they then subsequently become somehow... Like I mean, we almost we almost try to avoid the top like topical subjects in a weird way. We we, we talk topicality, but it's like I think it takes us four weeks sometimes to go from hey this is interesting to actually getting a podcast done on it. So we we're never on the forefront of breaking news. Yeah, um, we're much more interested in evergreen content. <laughs> exactly, that's our strategy. Um, yes, evergreen is a way to say. Lazy, uh, <laughs> lazy editorial thinking, but, um, but it felt like, you know, a, a, a couple weeks ago we did an episode on, um, content moderation online. Um, and then, uh, a week after that aired, the, the shooting in Pittsburgh happened and that's follow, following upon the, the attempted pipe bombings. And there's... I think we're seeing a lot of particularly unhinged discourse right now across our technologies. Um, and it felt like it was worth extending that conversation um, a little bit further to talk about, in some ways, uh, immoderate conversation, immoderate moderation of that conversation online, and um, talk a little bit about, um, I think, some of these prevailing narratives, um, particularly um, around the, the shooting at the synagogue, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, which actually I think you had, uh, not that not that specific synagogue, but you actually uh, lived in that area for quite a while when you went to University of Pittsburgh. Is that right? Yeah, I lived in Regent Square, which is just the, down the hill from Squirrel Hill. Uh, and my wife, Candace, lived in Squirrel Hill. And we took our daughter to the Jewish Community Center across the street, uh, or not across the street, I guess a block down from where the, the shooting eventually happened. And even when we were there, there was a there was a bomb threat at the community center. So this is a a community that has has been at least nominally targeted before. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so it it's it feels like you know, and we both went to a high school that had a shooting. Um, I guess about a year ago now, or I guess maybe even less than that. And it feels like some of this stuff is touching our lives a little bit closer than sometimes. Um, sometimes it feels like it it it. Is likely to. Sometimes our discussions might come across as a little academic, and this is a uh, not academic in that you are in the world of academia, but in the sense that we're kind of opining or philosophizing on things that maybe are a little bit less, more tangentially related to our real lives. And so today, I, I thought maybe it was worth just talking, kind of extending the discussion a little bit. I also um, have invited on um, a wonderful playwright. Uh, to talk a little bit about some of these, not just the narratives of anti-Semitism, but also um, she's a Jewish playwright, um, but she is not a Jewish playwright that focuses heavily on Jewish subjects. Um, but she was a playwright about a play um, that I was actually, I was a part of the production years and years ago, uh, about 2010, um, that really foretold, um, I think maybe even unintentionally foretold some of this, this, the rise in kind of anti-Semitism that we've sort of seen in our discourse. Um, so I've, I've asked her to join us as well, or at least I interviewed her as well, and would love to bring her voice in um, as we talk about some of these, uh, these narratives. Um, fundamentally, this podcast is about the stories we tell our robots, the narratives that are being um, thrown, into, thrown through and into our technologies, and this feels like it's an important time to talk about um, these stories and these narratives. Absolutely. I think that I, I, I agree with the decision that we made before starting this podcast. <laughs> you mean before starting today's podcast or just before yes. we started the whole endeavor? Right. Oh, well, today. I continue to regret that decision. <laughs> Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. Um, 
but yeah, so so first, I, I'm interested in, in you know first just the context for this, um, not so much about the shooting, which we're not here to report on that, um, but you know we've we've this idea of um, kind of this ongoing discussion about how and should or should and how content should be moderated online. There's interestingly enough two two stories I think just in the past week following on the shooting have. Uh, are just recently surfaced from our social media titans. Yeah, and I want to make this clear that uh, I actually think this fits uh, fits well with our overall theme for the season, which is revolting machines. This idea of what does it look like when machines uh, are, are placed in power above others. And I think content moderation is a really interesting place to think about this because uh, a term that's been showing up a lot more frequently in the news is people who are radicalized online, which is to mm-hmm. say... Whatever the particular terms of moderation or the dissemination of particular ideas online, people are accessing them there, and perhaps even uh, these ideas are being promoted there. And so two recent stories, uh, two of the largest tech companies on Twitter, uh, which often amplifies the voice of particular threads of conversation in order to uh, sort of get a kind of recursive loop or more and more people loop into a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have this trending on Twitter thing where it's like phrases, words that start to trend become sub places where a lot of people talk. And uh, trending on Twitter was kill all Jews, mm. which seems was pretty... This a, was it hashtag kill all Jews? I, or was it just... Um... I think it was kill all Jews and it might have been kill all the Jews. But, gotcha. but regardless, this is the kind of thing that you would assume content moderation would make an unacceptable sort of... Uh, amplified topic of discussion on the platform. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people, including uh, tech- techno-historian Mar Hicks, who, who wrote this book, Programmed Inequality, which is really lovely if you ever get a chance to, to look it up, uh, talks about how this isn't accidental, this is actually the logic of the platform, that they, that angry discussion often generates more discussion, and Twitter is mm. all about generating traffic on its own platform. And the other story was on Facebook, which say it was recently discovered that there was a, a sort of uh, information ad package on Facebook. What Facebook does is it, har- it gathers everybody's data and then it sort of offers to sell groups, uh, sort of influential groups to advertisers so that they can target their marketing. And, they, and one of the groups that they had gathered was a group that they labeled uh, white genocide, which is, of course, a sort of a conspiracy theory of white supremacy, white, white supremacy that... Uh, white people are in danger of having genocide committed against them, and therefore, uh, you know, all all forms of racial monstrosity is acceptable. And what's interesting about this, Facebook at first said, well, our algorithms simply find linguistic groups and then right. kind of gather them into a packet. But actually, there did have to be a content moderator approving that group. So right. uh, here we see at the major tech companies e- either an intentional misunderstanding of how to moderate content or uh, perhaps more insidiously a a passive acceptance of really uh, horrifying anti-Semitism. Right. No, exactly. And I think that's the, what's interesting about it is the fact that the, I don't think anybody on Facebook or Twitter is out there manually aggregating white supremacists into a, uh, an advertising block to sell them as a uh, as a key segment, um, or for that matter, pulling together that thread of a conversation, saying, "Hey, look, this like this is going to really spark some some lively discourse or something." Um, so it really is the robots are doing that to a certain degree. They're responding to the, and this is where we get to what as the stories we tell our robots. They're insp- responding to the specific programming desires of the platform though which is to optimize to something twitter wants to optimize mm-hmm. towards discourse right and and if if it is in fact the case that uh that vi- virulent passionate discourse maybe even bordering on the obscene or racist is develops conversation and drives more people to twitter and more activity on twitter um the platform the robot will almost inevitably optimized to that. Um, And the same thing is true of um, Facebook, right? The subject groupings that it makes are, they're looking for subject groupings that are subjects that are particularly passionate to the, and and, um, 
hot button to the people who are then being grouped into this. So these are the issues that really rise to the surface for the group that is being kind of um, triangulated around. Um, and there's a way in which I think both these platforms say, well, but our job is to make the platform function along this kind of these resonant lines or resonance lines. Um, and the subject is, and the subject and the specific nature or the responsibility that we have for the subject or the specific nature of the discourse is, uh, is secondary. Like we're, we're like the robots are doing this. Right. And, mm -hmm. and in the case of Facebook, they, they just had to passively approve it. Right. And I guess this case of Twitter too, they had to passively approve that these things were going to go on, but the robots were making the decisions. Yeah. And not only passively approve, but it's also worth saying, uh, on the front end, not produce forms of either human or algorithmic content moderation that disallow this, these forms of speech. So right. uh, there's a scare quotes freedom, hypothetically, um, that these platforms allow, but that freedom seems to triangulate almost specifically to forms of hate speech. Right, right. Well, and so, so that is... So that, you know, that, that's, that's really kind of dovetailing with the last conversation. Um, but, you know, obviously around the, the, the shooting in Pittsburgh um, and then even with the, which was, it was explicitly anti-Semitic, but even the, um, the pipe bombs and a lot of the, the rhetoric around, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of current enemies of the state as they're current, currently being termed or, or, um, but they're 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 also being buttressed by these kind of overtly kind of anti-Semitic or at least implicitly anti-Semitic kind of dog whistly terms. I think the the use of George Soros as kind of this overarching villain is mm -hmm. interesting. You know, this kind of globalist villain. He's the sort of shady Jewish um, uh, financier who's who's at the center of all the these conspiracy theories coming from the radical you know about the radical left or something about these caravans or whatever. And so what's interesting to me about this is this question, kind of the narrative of anti-Semitism. Like, mm -hmm. where does this, because it feels so um, lasting. Like the story, like it's, it's, it's anti-Semitism has existed as a pretty fixed narrative structure, as in we have this vision of, you know, this negative vision of, of Jews and this negative vision of kind of what Jews are doing. Um, I think there's very few kind of negative stereotypical tropes that have been quite as um, stable as the anti-Semitic tropes that I think you know, are clearly now resurfacing. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested, this, you know, with you as a, as someone who examines narrative, uh, you know, mm -hmm. what do you, you know, kind of, what do you make of that so far? And we can talk a little bit of it, then obviously I'm, I'm going to introduce our interview. Uh, yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, we can, we can do a little before, a little after. Um, I think, as as a playwright who who writes specifically about these issues, I think she has a real deep sense of um, feeling out this narrative space. But uh, perhaps just a point towards one that became very loud to the point of becoming kind of synonymous with forms of anti-Semitism. Um, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice is often talked about. I mean, by by no means is is the Merchant of Venice anywhere close to the beginning of anti-Semitism. In fact. Uh, mm -hmm. When it's written around 1600, uh, there are no Jews legally present in England and, and hadn't been for several hundred years because of the Edict of Expulsion in 1290, um, right. in which all the Jews were forced to leave England. So uh, this is all to say, so he writes The Merchant of Venice. There's his character Shylock, who is the antagonist of the piece. He, uh, he, the, the, one of the kind of the protagonists, this guy Antonio, is uh, ha has sort of borrowed money from Shylock or taken a security out with him, and Shylock has, has asked for security a pound of Antonio's flesh um, because mm -hmm. he hates Antonio so much because Antonio <laughs> is quite anti-Semitic and uh, right. <laughs> has yeah already like uh, inflicted financial losses on him and spits on him and physically assaults him. <laughs> so really, I mean, at a certain point, apparently uh, in the 19th century, this actor Jacob Adler starts to portray Shylock as a um, sympathetic character. Um, but <laughs> you, in some ways, in, in hindsight, it's hard not to read him a bit sympathetically because, boy, he's he's already got it really bad before he does this thing where he's trying to take revenge. Um, but anyhow, 
So uh, Shylock is, is perhaps a, a figure that comes to stand in for a kind of anti-Semitism and being called a Shylock uh, eventually becomes a term as like somebody who is a, a vindicative or vengeful Jewish figure um, or mm. a, a, a money lender who sort of cheats or charges really exorbitant rate, rates. Right. Um, yeah, and that's a, and it's, as you're saying, like that's that's what two hundred years or four hundred years after like Jews have been expelled from England. Um, yeah. Is that right? Three hundred years. Three hundred and ten. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So just to give like the stability of this particular narrative is, I mean, it's it's enough that you can write an archetypal figure in the 1600s based upon based upon like. A, a a large scale bias in the 1200s, right? Like that. Like when we think about our like our time frames, when you think about centuries passing, I think mm-hmm. it's worth thinking of in those terms. Um, so before we, so rather than continue kind of on this path, so I think that's that's interesting context, and I think it's sort of setting up this conversation. Um, but yeah, I'd, 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 I'm going to jump over to this interview with uh, Alan Maddow who is a wonderful playwright for the uh, and, and performer and a founding member of the group Talking Band, which is a, um, a, they've, they're an incredible downtown experimental theater company. They've been around for 44 years now, have produced over 50 original works of theater. Um, they've won, I think, over a dozen, you know, Obie Awards, which is sort of the off-Broadway awards um, for, for non-Broadway productions um, that were given out by village voice um you know i mean countless other accolades they they're sort of a seminal theater um i think now if you read historical texts they actually came out of joseph shaken's uh open theater which is if you read sort of like the the i remember reading about joseph shaken's open theater um in theater history classes when i was in college so um really coming out of this you know the this legacy of of experimental um, creative, uh, transformative theater thinking starting in like the 1960s um, and going till today. And that's, that's so Ellen Maddow's coming in and she, she, uh, she was the playwright for this, for this play, uh, Panic Euphoria Blackout, which is a play that was produced in 2010. Um, and it was coming off of the, collapse, the financial system collapse. Um, and she'll introduce it a little bit more, but just to give you the context, um, when it was produced, it was, it was, it kind of touched on this interesting subject where Ellen, I remember at the time was saying, you know, it's, it's really about kind of the cycle of, of boom and bust and, and um, kind of these, these, these bubbles and collapses that you see in the financial sector alongside these cycles of, of Jewish um, exodus. Right. So again, we used, you know, the, 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 English exodus, in, you know, of Jews in the 1290s. Um, but that's, there's been sort of a recurring cycle of Jews essentially um, being expelled from various societies following, um, often following a financial collapse of some sort and Jews often being um, taking the blame for it and being um, kicked out often uh, for a number of very practical reasons of, well, <laughs> if, if the people who hold your debt, <laughs> if you can't pay them back, you have, you, they either foreclose on you or you kick them out. And I think there's, there's a role in which sometimes Jews have played as a bit sort of the sin eaters sometimes of financial collapses. But anyway, so uh, without further ado, um, is there anything else you want to say before I uh, introduce the interview? No, I'd, I'd like to hear it. Great. Well, uh, yeah, here's, the, here's my interview with uh, Ellen Maddow of Talking Band. All right. Well, we're here today uh, with uh, Ellen Maddow. Um, Alan is a actually a longtime friend. I'd like to think friend. <laughs> um, yes, definitely. Yes, and um, uh, but also a founding member of the um, theater company Talking Band. Uh, so the reason why um, I really want to talk to you here, first of all, I mean, Talking Band is uh, again incredible theater. Um, just a little context. I actually worked with Talking Band for for quite a bit. Um, kind of in an earlier phase when I was running a company in uh, in New York that working in uh, marketing and um, Talking Band was actually, you guys were our first client, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You were the, you're the acorn from which we sprung. Um, 
but also just a, just a real pleasure in terms of working on productions with you and and really seeing the process by which you produced work by which you kind of engage with the world um and specifically there was a a production that uh we we collaborated with you on which was the show Panic Euphoria Blackout which i think today feels particularly uh, prescient and I think particularly worth worth re-examining in the light of uh, the last couple weeks. Yeah, I guess so. Yep. Yeah. Which distressingly so, but um, so yeah. so just to give you give you sense um, and maybe some context for for people listening, can you can you talk a little bit about even before we go into the play Panic Euphoria Blackout? Um, can you talk a little bit about. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in about Talking Band is is I think. Um, the New York Times, I think, it once described the, uh, the uh, talking band as one of the boldest and most venerable politically-minded companies in New York experimental theater. And that term politically-minded companies, uh, politically-minded, jumps out at me because one of the things I've always been struck by is this, this question of what is political theater. Um, and I've never felt that talking band is heavily political when you when you just think oh well what is political theater and yet there is this idea that that you are dealing with with kind of political subjects can you talk a little bit about kind of the organization its approach to that maybe loaded term well i think you know we're not like um so directly political but we're interested in telling stories about things that are relevant to um you know to our lives and so, and so that always that somehow includes some kinds of things that are, in some way, political. Um, always, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're interested in the, you know, in sort of um, the beauty of everyday life and um, and the surprises that come with that. But it usually leads to, and since um, it usually leads to some kind of, I don't know, all those things overlap with politics. Everything overlaps with politics. So. It's not directly like one of those kinds of teaching theaters that's polemical or anything, but it usually has subjects that that um, resonate in some political way. Not always, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and one of the things that I'm I've always been struck by is the process by which it comes out, um, by which kind of plays are produced. Because you know, when I think when we when you think of the classic like a Tennessee Williams type playwright, although I'm sure he was probably more collaborative than I think now people think of him as being um talking band hasn't always produced you you don't produce theater by somebody going off into the woods to write although sometimes literally paul or you go off into the woods to write but but it's 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 more of a it's not going off and seeking like the the plays aren't developed out of this kind of ether but they they're, they're more process driven yes i mean i think so i mean we're not um we're not like we don't get together with a group of people and make something up, which is a little bit of more of where we came from originally. I mean, usually we've we've come to think that language is really important and needs to be crafted really carefully um, and not in a haphazard way. So um, that's why we, you know, usually one of us is the playwright or we work with poets or playwrights um, so that we can craft the language really carefully because um, we're interested in that. So, um, so for instance, with um, Panic Euphoria, I had, you know, the, the starting points are always interesting. Like, you never know where the starting points are going to be. And we, we have various kinds of, you know, like I once um, collaborated with a mathematician on a play or, you know, using that as a starting point. Or I had, you know, starting with, when we did flip side, it was starting with the design before the play and the design, you know, sort of influence where the play went. And in this case, um, I think I was interested in what was happening um, in the financial world, especially at that time, you know, around 2008 when the whole crash came and I realized that I absolutely had no idea and everything was so complicated um, Mm -hmm. that I decided I should teach myself something about how these things worked. Um, and and so that's sort of was the starting point for it. But then I did a few really early workshops where I just had a little bit of material with um, the people who were eventually in the play. Um, and um, Katie Pearl, who was the director, we we were 
I was a member of New Dramatists, you know, at that time, which is a playwrights organization that takes seven playwrights a year and you stay for seven years and you get a lot of support. Um, so we did like a, a week, if it was a week or two, where there was very little material and we were working a lot on the visuals and the kind of um, the world of the, you know, the, the physical world of the play. And, and so, you know, that way I was really inspired by the actors um, who were Paul Zimmett, Randy Rand, and Mary Schultz, and mm-hmm. and the kinds of things that they came up with. Um, and then, you know, so the writing was passed back and forth in that way, um, more with that play than with some others, which have been more written from scratch, you know, in the woods <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, so that one was particularly, um, there was a, you know, there was a lot that got generated in the room with the people. And we had this idea really early on that there was just a big table, and mm-hmm. that was the whole stage. And so we worked a lot with that idea and um, that kind of – and then, yeah, there's a bunch of different things. But anyway. Well, I, I love that idea of starting points, which feels like um, – you know, it's, in some cases, anytime you're sitting down to write, it always feels like that. The, figuring out what that kind of genesis is can feel both paralyzing, but also once you find it, it feels like it's almost like everything else starts becoming inevitable after that. Um, right. And so, I mean, one of the interesting things to me, and now some of the context about Panic Euphoria Blackout, and I, I, I'm going to try to describe it very briefly. I'm probably going to get a couple things wrong on this. So I think you might be able to do a better mm-hmm. job of filling in some of the details. Um, but Panic Euphoria Blackout is, is as I understand it, and I don't know that it's a play that's necessarily meant to be fully understood. At least, I mean, from the New York Times, I think they, I think this was the show that that invited the willfully obscure response from the or willful obscurity response from the New York Times. Right, which was not at all. I mean, I think I think more where I was coming from was an an attempt to kind of, um, uh, what's the word? It's not abstract, but really distill um, mm-hmm. these ideas so that you could look at them in a, in a way of like kind of in an alienated way, so you could see the whole history of finance, mm-hmm. and then became connected with the story of the Jews. Um, of this, because I'm Jewish, I became interested in that stereotype, and and it's very present in early history of finance. Um, you know, because the, for instance, the um, in the Catholic Church, it was against the law, I believe, to lend money. But at a certain point, people had to borrow money, like when those ships were going to travel mm-hmm. to the New World and get spices. They needed money. Before they could sell the spices, they needed the money to build the ship. This is really mm-hmm. making it very simplistic. So um, the only way they could think of to not um, violate God's will was to let the Jews do it. You know, and then right. they, they set up outside of the church, and so that's sort of how it began. And you know, it's like the outsiders let the outsiders do it, mm-hmm. do the bad, do the do the the bad stuff, the sinful stuff, and because we need it, you know, was kind of the idea. So I don't know if it's important that it's Jews, but it's important that it's outsiders. Um, well, and it's in that kind of case. And it does feel like, and I guess, you know, and, the, and to kind of flesh out the context, the play really does kind of provide this really interesting cycle of somehow both the fin- these financial crash cycles, which have, which are almost being like the way that the financial system seems to believe that there's a, or seems that there's an inevitable kind of bull and bear cycle, that there are crashes and there are, there are bubbles and things like that, that that's almost factored right. in kind of running equal to this almost like exodus cycle that you kind of have in Jewish history where you have right, both of being, the, right. right. And and those things seem not unrelated. But there that there is a there is a boom and bust cycle in finance and there is an exodus cycle in Jewish history and that those and obviously there is a, a strong interrelationship between the role that Jewish communities and Jews have played in the financial system. And I don't know if that's, I don't know from a historical perspective, I think if we wanted a direct history of kind of Jewish culture, we would probably would talk to a historian, but kind of how you saw that from um, kind of a narrative perspective. Right. I mean, I, you know, I don't think 
that they're that those two kinds of cycles are directly related, but there's definitely when the trouble comes, of mm-hmm. whatever the trouble is or whatever the bad thing is, you blame it on the outsiders and you and you kick them out in order to keep the blame from you know the powers that be kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think the characters in Panic Euphoria were actually not, for the most part, the the tycoons are the people really in power, but they're the people who work for the people mm-hmm. who are in power. And they're the ones, the sort of, um, not the higher ups, but the sort of, they take the fall. You know, mm-hmm. I think that happens over and over again on some level. But as I say, it's not always Jews, it's whoever, you know, and that's why it's so tied up with this immigrant idea now. Mm-hmm. It's got all much mixed up together with the thing in Pittsburgh because you have a double thing of like, that, you know, if you want to have a conspiracy theory, you get that the Jews are like bringing these otherness, these other others in and to destroy us, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of um, a mushy kind of thing that you can create some kind of conspiracy around, you know, because people, people, I don't know, it seems to be a human thing to do, I don't know, unfortunately. So, so this was like a double thing because I think that synagogue was actually helping right if I got it right immigrants and um you know right it had a mission and, you know, of course, specifically around right. that and of, right and of course um you know the newcomers have always changed in in American history it used to be it was the Irish it was the Italians but you know it was definitely the Jews at some point and I'm second generation Jew and the play has a structure this circular structure right which is right. based I on this to... ring structure mm-hmm Right, also I want to talk, talk about that. Talk about that structure a little bit. Like, what is, like, what, where does that sort of come from, and what is that um, kind of behind that? Yeah, I wish, I wish I remember the name of. You know, it's like one of those things that, that anything that that you kind of run into when you're working on a play kind of gets, like, as if you have a ball of clay and everything that you roll over gets stuck in it. You know, and it mm-hmm. becomes the play, and it, as it grows, the this ball of whatever it is. And so I read this um, interesting article and I, about this woman who who was looking at the structures of certain old, um, and I can't think of her name right now, it's Mary something. You might have to, we might, I, I could look it up for you. But it, I um, always I always claim, look in our show notes, and then I I inevitably never have time to actually update our show notes. So it's, yeah. it's, 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 I it's think my I constant... <laughs> I, I actually have the program somewhere, but and I also have the original material. But anyway, she she started looking at old some old stories that there were in terms of that they were written that it seemed very chaotic. I think the Iliad was one of them, and that people couldn't find a structure for. And and, and one of them is the story of Abraham and Isaac that she talked about. So that was partly why I was interested in it, also because my son is Isaac. So it came up every year. Rosh Hashanah. What what? is the story of Abraham and Isaac. What the hell is that? The father mm-hmm. is supposed to is supposed to sacrifice his son to God. Why would God ever ask him to do that? You know, what kind of God is that that would ask you to sacrifice something in that way? And then her this woman's idea is that that um that everybody knows the end of the story at the beginning of the story. They know that the mm-hmm. angel is gonna come and save the day. So the story is like laid out in a circle and it travels to a turning point and then comes back the other way, and everybody knows the story. And so it's not as – because you know the end of the story, which is that the angel comes and saves um, Abraham from killing his son, and, and God won't let him kill his son, you know, won't let him sacrifice it. That you, it, it adds to your enjoyment of the story mm-hmm. that you know where it's going to end up. And it seems like this structure is um, – is something that a lot of old texts were written like this. So I tried, I tried to make that be the structure of this play, and it was a really interesting, you know, because the left and right side of it are the same, only reversed. Mm-hmm. So it, it travels to a turning point and then turns around and comes back the other way, back to the beginning. And I, I really tried to educate the audience uh, beforehand by having you know, this little speech at the beginning that was a description of what you were going to see and how it was going to go in a circle. Um, but still, sometimes people didn't 
follow that, um, mm-hmm. even though I felt like I tried to make it so. So I was like not. I was like not willfully trying to make anything abstract. I was trying to <laughs> really willfully make things as clear as possible. But mm-hmm. I did want to abstract the idea of um, of trading and of one thing for another, of this for that. And how, you know, that's really, you know, money is kind of a, like an abstract thing and how to sort of address that in a theatrical way, that kind yep. of buying and selling and trading idea um, and how it develops over time through history. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, th- no, I think that is, I mean, I think what's so interesting about the financial function and, you know, I've spent, a, I spent a long time working um, uh, in and around sort of the financial systems. Um, often, often on the marketing side or often on the communication side. But one of the things that's really, that really strikes me is that nobody can really anchor what money is. Like when you're talking about finance, you're almost never talking about money. What you're talking about is you're talking about, you're talking about assets or you're talking about goods or you're talking about futures or you're talking about risk. We're talking about all these other things. Like, Money is this is this thing that everybody thinks is a thing and and kind of never really is. It's always just a it's a it's a placeholder for something else. Right, exactly. So, you know, I felt I felt particularly um, ignorant about that, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and it seemed like a lot of people did, and that's why, one of the reasons why, um, you know, the financial markets were were able to like um, do these very, very risky things, and everybody agreed agreed on it in a certain way because nobody understood, nobody really mm-hmm. understood what it was. So I thought, um, I better teach myself a little bit about it, and I, <laughs> I still evade, I, sometimes I don't get it still, but I, you know, I have a little bit more of an idea from from writing the play. Well, what anyway. I think is, what I think is interesting is, um, is out of that is, is, you know, I think is in, in a lot of ways when you're doing work and I think about like why was this was an origin, why, why this, what, what the starting point for you, um, for this was, you know, you were surrounded, you know, in many ways you, you live in downtown New York. You, you were kind of right at the epicenter of a lot of the early, you know, kind of crisis around the financial right. sector. The fact right. that like, that you ended up kind of picking up a sensitivity to I think what now we sort of see as being kind of another outbreak of kind of anti-Semitism at time for you at the time whether you were originally doing it or not around that or just because it seemed like this was a natural flow to it uh, it seemed was, to be wrapped up in the history somehow it was wrapped up with the history of of finance when I started to read about it and then I was very interested because it's sort of about me Right. You know, in my history, so of course I got interested in it. Right, and yet I, yeah. I distinctly recall um, people leaving the theater. Um, a, a number of people. I mean, some people really enjoyed it. Some people really got it. But I distinctly remember kind of a portion of the audience leaving the theater, expressing that, well, this isn't relevant to this cycle. That this cycle somehow there's there's not the same tie between. Um, Jews and the financial crash in the same way that there isn't that same scapegoating happening and 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 maybe it was because Jews have moved into the mainstream in a way that they had and, and they weren't outsiders anymore they weren't they were they were they were right. not these kind of casual you know easy scapegoats anymore um, and that was in 2010 and I remember there's a lot of there was yeah a fair share of like oh well this doesn't seem like it's relevant to this day and age. And now we're in 2018, and it feels like actually yeah, that, I mean, it seems like it is speaking to something. Right. I mean, it, it's interesting because I don't know if it's true of everybody who's Jewish, but you, I always feel there's a potential for scapegoating um, in the air. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. like I was talking to somebody the other day. Well, we were talking about this a similar thing for. Oh, because I guess because we were uh, in this workshop I was just in, we were talking about the the things that happened in Pittsburgh, and people were talking about their identities. They had a day where we were talking about cultural humility and about how you identify yourself. And so I picked to talk about being a second-generation Jew because the thing in Pittsburgh had just happened. And mm-hmm. you do feel lulled into thinking, you know, things like that don't happen anymore. Um, 
you know, even if you're Jewish. But but then I remembered that, like, when you know, when the when the World Trade Center was being um, when the planes were going into the Trade Center, I went up on my roof and I could see it happening. And I went up with my neighbor, who's an old, um, she's now in her 90s, but she, you know, she's Jewish and she had to leave where she w- was and escape during World War II. And so she sort of has a history of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we we saw, you know, it was before the towers fell down, but we just first we saw that first um you know, hole in the first, and then we saw the second plane come from the other. So mm-hmm. we were very confused about what was going on. And she turns to me and says, well, whatever it is, they're going to blame the Jews. <laughs> and we were like, it was like a joke, you know, mm-hmm. sort of. You know, I mean, we were we were terrified, but it was like, and then it turned out to be, yes, that is, <laughs> there is that whole conspiracy theory that mm-hmm. I was like, really? I can't believe that that actually was true. Yeah. So so it's always right under the surface. And I think um you know, I mean I think it could be uh, you know, like in the same week somebody sent all those pipe bombs to all the Democrats. It's like right. it's not only the Jews, it's the others, the people who are other or the people who seem to be who you set up as if they're in charge or have this some kind of shadow mm-hmm. um conspiracy to get you or whatever it is, you know, and, and somehow Jews serve that function, maybe right. just because of being a minority through history. Um, Possibly, yeah. And I, I don't, I, yeah. I, I think about the way that like George Soros is such a, such a, <laughs> such a like an epicenter figure. He's kind of right mm-hmm. there in the center, and he, I think he plays that role as kind of this, this um, kind of very powerful Jewish figure at like the center of I think a lot of kind of. Right. Uh, kind of these, you know, mm-hmm. and then and you can't help. And I guess as a child, I couldn't help but internalize some of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel it's, my grandmother was kind of a weird immigrant that spoke mm-hmm. with a funny accent. You know, and and I was an American. You know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's got a lot of levels. Um, yeah. There's there's a line from a character in the character of Ruth in Panic Euphoria Blackout, which I I thought was. Like some, I think it sort of speaks to what you're saying. And the line is, um, you know, this is the way it works. Never outstay your welcome. Don't wait until they have time to hate you. Be on the lookout for a change in the air, a bitter word behind your back, a deflected gaze, a shrug of the shoulder, a shifting of feet, an empty smile. If you sense that today is the day to leave, you should have been out of here yesterday. And right. it does speak to some of that kind of kind of what you're saying is like what's what like you're always tasting the air in some ways and that there's a sense right there's of, a kind of hypersensitive sensitivity to mm-hmm. oh here we're gonna you know and you know you can't i mean the holocaust was not very long ago right <laughs> you know, not very long ago at all you know when you think about it that's always shocking to me like that happened mm-hmm. you know right before i was born you know um and that you know, and that's kind of really, really shocking when you think about the present. You know, um, anyway. And and the degree to which that the kind of semiotics of that event have have kind of kind of re-entered our discourse, however however much um, abstracted from their original source, it feels like you know we're we're now having these conversations about white nationalism again and. And they seem to be starting to play a role somewhere along the political fringe, but still, it's there now. Right, right, and it's in other countries too. Right, you know, and Brazil just elected that really scary guy. You know, for instance, I mean, I don't know if he's anti-Semitic, but he's definitely one of those scary guys. <laughs> yeah. So there, there is. Uh, I don't know what's going on really, but anyway. Well, and and so you know, I, you know, the the place where I inevitably go with it, and where we kind of go on this podcast is looking at well, what are the, what are in some ways on the one hand these very these very kind of visceral narratives, but on the other hand, like what's actually happening in these in the these systems of finance? Like there there, there does seem to have been an, you know a growing sense that somehow the financial crisis is being laid at the feet of <laughs> of Jewish bankers. I think about who's being pulled in front of Congress, whether it's a Lloyd Bank fine, Lehman Brothers, obviously being right. uh, J- Jewish in origin, sort of being the one that was let to let allowed to fail. But 
if you actually look at the financial system itself, it's interesting kind of where that system is going. Like so much of that system is going from the kind of the kind of manual trading that you kind of um, depict and kind of play out with this kind of table, these kind of the, the small asset trading on this table in the in the play Panic Euphoria Blackout, where you have these these traders litting, literally sitting, standing beside a, or behind a table, uh, trading objects as assets, right? Um, right, and then later, right. later they're wearing kind of trading, uh, trading floor jackets, right? And kind of right. calling out and making the kind of trading calls. So right. much of that world is now um, automated. Yeah, and it's, and that's almost an archaic view of it. So much of the world is now these machine algorithms, these systems. I think. Um, yeah. So I don't know what what I mean. Their people are still doing it, right? Or are right. they not even anymore? Well, they're they're more and more. They are. I mean, yes, people are still doing active fund management and active trading and things like that. But in many cases, we are moving. We are increasingly moving to kind of these automated, data driven decisions, and and yet, like, kind of the underlying kind of narratives don't seem to, if anything, the underlying narratives seem to be strengthening about kind of this anxiety about these other populations. Right. I guess so. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's definitely these kinds of um, narratives floating around. I, I, you know, I rarely think about that myself, you know, as being mm-hmm. related to. But, you know, there is this whole movement of white nationalism now is it related to the automation of of you know banking or is it just is it a bigger something bigger like that Mm -hmm. certain groups of people feel disenfranchised and because of globalization you know they're not making their living in the way that they used to and that in order to really make a good living you have to be one of these people who can program things on a computer or whatever Mm -hmm. and you know, how, I don't know in like a really meta way, you know, in a big way how these kinds of things are floating, you know, but right. it's interesting right. to think about. And in many ways, it's, in many ways, it's it's not your job so much to know <laughs> about the, right. the meta way how things are. It's the kind of what are the, yeah, what is, what are the stories that people are living? I mean, I think that's the thing that, right. you know, just getting back to like Talking Band, which I think is so interesting about how you kind of the company's view and your view of politics, which is politics is in these kind of lived experiences in the daily life. Right. And it seems like really the story of panic euphoria blackout is the, is the story of a relationship of a friendship between these three people mm-hmm. that, that develops and becomes intimate in some way. And then is broken apart by mm-hmm. history, history moving on and, and they're, they're having to, um, you know, survive, and mm-hmm. and what and how that tears them apart. By the end, they're torn apart. You know, Ruth leaves, but you know, there's like this intimacy that even in spite of everything, these three people who feel that they're floating and never, and always ready to leave, and always suspicious of the world around them, and always learning to survive, however they can, they develop this really strong um, connection to each other kind of love for each other and then it's broken apart so it's really actually about that on a lot of levels too you know and i think that's a really interesting kind of point to end on is this this question of kind of how relationships in general like how stable or unstable they are during these times and these during these times of feelings of survival versus feelings of uh, like growth like do people come to can people stay together at these times of kind of collapse? And it feels like we haven't totally. And whether that's, whether that's reparable, can be repaired, whether it's reparable, is that the opposite of irreparable? Right. I mean, I, you know, I think I'm always writing in a way the same play over and over, which has to do with some kind of, um, somebody had a word for it, but it's a kind of utopia where people who wouldn't normally be um, family with each other become a kind of family. Like mm-hmm. a dis, it's like a um, default utopia. That's what this friend of mine calls it, the default utopia. <laughs> I mean, in the case of those three characters in that play, they, 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 they do have connection to each other on some level because they're all Jewish. But 
But I'm often writing about, like, very disparate people who end up being friends. And I think, you know, that's the only saving grace of of any of any kind of thing, of, you know, of what's worth living for in a certain way. And so you have to find those connections. And I think, you know, that on some level there's a kind of splitting apart going on, but there's also, you know, I look at my children who are, who have very, um, you know, they're they're all different. They've married people from different races. There's a kind of a, more and more of a of a kind of um, feeling that you know, gay, straight, um, African American, Chinese, um, you know, Indian, everything. You know, that people are um, more and more you know coming together. I mean, people younger than me, definitely even younger than you, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're the same age as my children, but there's definitely <laughs> something going in a positive direction mm-hmm. that has to do with with an expanding kind of acceptance of people who are different from you, mm-hmm. or a different definition of who's the same as you, even at the same time as there's this terrible splitting apart and this terrible, um, you know, hatred going on. So yeah. that's hopeful, you know. I think. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I hope so. It's 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 I, I I think it is too. I stay optimistic about this. I do think that there's the um what's what's interesting to think of as as we're kind of we're kind of stuck with each other. <laughs> like the idea that right. that um while the characters in Panic Euphoria Blackout, again, as you say, the they're all Jewish characters, the idea that we were kind of brought together at different times and kind of fractured at different times. Um, and they're all very lonely, those people in Panic Euphoria, and then they find this connection with each other in this world that's pretty much hostile to all of right. them. You know, so I don't know. That's, that's their story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, maybe, the, maybe the best thing is I always think about the fact that the, the, the play ends somewhat um, – yeah, spoiler alert. Because <laughs> right, <laughs> no, but the, the 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 play ends somewhat um, tragically in the sense that they're kind of isolated again. But if you think about it in yeah. the sense of in the sense of a circle, um, right. you you actually feel like no, but the 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 the, the coming together is just uh, it will be possible again. Like you, like it's there's it's given, given the fact again. that right. Right, that there's no end point to it, that we right. at times end up in a place where we're fractured and at times we end up in a place where we're together. And that's, um, right. the world does seem sort of, the systems of the world do seem sort of uh, kind of hostile to that <laughs> that togetherness, though, at times. Yeah, and I don't know what the addition of, you know, having computers do more and more things, Yeah. Um, where that will lead, you know, I don't know. You know, like Paul found on his on his phone, all of, or it was his iPad, all of a sudden it had created these um, beautiful um, slideshows out of out of our photos that we had taken over the summer. It just somehow they they self-generated, mm-hmm. and they had music, and they really seemed to be telling the story of our summer. And it was mm-hmm. some kind of algorithm that just sort of put this thing together. I, he didn't know how it even got there, mm-hmm. but like the very last image was the puppy. You know, which came at the end of the thing. Like, oh, you know, it's like, how did that algorithm know to make this thing for us that that we that seemed like a story? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, so and where the where the where the new puppy is like is like the end of the summer as sort of being the a, end of the yeah, it's like the high point. Or like, yeah, here we are. You know, it was like and Italy and you know blah 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 blah, and then puppy. You know, it was, like, <laughs> it was really funny, and it was an algorithm. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, we couldn't have done a better job ourselves <laughs> picking these pictures out. I don't know. It seemed, or maybe mm-hmm. just the way we read it. You know, we read into it. Whatever yeah. we we want, whatever we can, you know. I don't well, know. that that actually sounds like it's the it's the uh, starting point for a new play by Paul. Actually, <laughs> <Somehow>. <laughs> I expect to see something with a robot algorithm sometime in the next eighteen months. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, well, Alan, thank you so much for talking. I really appreciate you. Uh, no problem. No I problem, will. and I hope it comes out good. Oh, I'm sure it will. It's uh. Is it, there are low bars to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Well, um, yeah, that, that was that was Alan Maddow. Yeah, that was splendid. Oh, I, I find you know sometimes you listen to craftspeople, you know, like people who work work with a material or an idea or like an art form, and you just realize how much thought goes into sort of layering that that into existence. You know, I think the, there's a sort of uh, there's sort of mythologies of time of people like you know or, or Orson Welles would just sit down and create something, but uh, right. When you actually right. listen to somebody talk through a creative process, it, it's like, oh, that's a lifetime. That's really beautiful. Right. Right. It's it's an ongoing exploration, right? It's not a, here, I'm going to turn out this this little, I'm going to turn out these these finely wrought gems. It's a, it's a, a sort of a constant thought process and a constant exploration. Um, and I think especially for, for someone like Alan and for the Talking Band, where they, they they write plays that really do kind of come out of the this fabric of life, which I think has always has always been really interesting to me. I'm, I'm I'm sometimes turned off by overtly political theater, so the way that they engage in in kind of the politics of life, like this is just how you're living, and the idea that sometimes life is made harder because of the um, because of the in, implicit politics in it. Um, or it's made better, it's made richer because of some because of some implicit politics. But it's it gets away by it gets away from some of the didactic qualities of overt political theater or overt political discourse, um, which I think is really interesting. I think, that, and I and you can even hear as Ellen's kind of talking through this. I think she's less. I was struck by the interview where she's you know as a Jewish playwright, she is less sort of reactive to. This, this quote anti rise in anti-Semitism and more just like, well, what's, what's happening? What's, what's this discourse? And are we, are we sort of breaking apart? Is it, is this a breaking apart cycle? Um, and it's interesting because it, it doesn't, it, she has a more interesting view to it than just what well, people, people really hate Jews right now. Um, and in fact, in some ways, it fe- she felt like she didn't even go into the original writing of Panic Euphoria Blackout with an eye towards necessarily it being a, a conversation about um, anti-Semitism per se, but just a, a conversation about sort of what she felt was, was kind of growing separation between people and alienation. Yeah, and I think that alienation, uh, just to make one further point about uh, The Merchant of Venice, that the central figure Shylock that uh, Shakespeare uses to represent the Jewish character, and just to reiterate, Shakespeare had likely never met a Jewish person in his life, um, that that Shylock isn't even a Jewish name. It's actually, right. but it was a common 16th century London name, um, mm. and generally belonged to communities of goldsmiths, mercers, and uh, scriveners. Mm-hmm. At least uh, according to Stanford professor Stephen Orgel. Um, but uh, it, it, what's interesting about that then is that the the sort of anti-Semitism that potentially appears in something like The Merchant of Venice is, is entirely fabricated. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of the uh, a vague echo of an echo of an echo of potentially something real this this idea that during some period in history um the jewish community uh was able to lend money at interest while there were were rules in the catholic church against doing so hmm that's really interesting so it 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 does feel like increasingly the narratives we have kind of anti-semitic narratives uh while kind of Jews are a durable anchor to that narrative, it actually doesn't seem like maybe it's even about them anymore. Yeah, I think Just that's about right. about like an other. Yeah, yeah. And insofar that in some way their otherness gets tied to something like usury, um, mm-hmm. and that, 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 you know, maybe the dog whistle term is something like globalist elite or something like that now. Um right. That uh, and this happens. This is not just a Shakespearean thing. This is still happening in you know high modernism. This uh, this shows up in things like uh, T. S. Eliot's Sweeney among the Nightingales with this figure Rachel Nay Rabinovich, or uh, in Ezra Pound's Forty Fifth Canto, uh, which is a uh, uh, with Usura, where he sort of has this long form tirade against usury and how it kind of emasculates all men and destroys all labor. Um, Ezra Pound, mm-hmm. of course being a, a wildly anti-Semitic 
um, and a, a great supporter of Mussolini through one period of his life. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, but these are people, it's worth saying T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, these are still people who are taught in classrooms, right? That, that um, however much or however little, they, their poetry actually is connected to, or grounded in any kind of historical fact. These ideologies are at least implicitly kind of embraced. Um, yeah. Well, and I think that's, I mean, in some ways, is why it gets to the core of why I think this particular issue is worth talking about on a tech podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the subject of, I mean, we we think about this idea of money lending and this idea of Jews as sort of being this kind of, these core practitioners in our financial system and everything. And like, that's, that's such a durable narrative. But, but, but my point is, I guess, is what's interesting to me is that the, um, even to the degree that um, Jews were a major part of a financial system at some point, it's not even clear that humans are a major part of our financial system increasingly, mm-hmm. right? We are, we are in the act of not just removing the response, you know, kind of our financial decision-making, our big investment decision-making from uh, kind of from, from niche populations. It's like we're increasingly moving them into into our robots. We're increasingly giving kind of our investment decisions up to, you know, we're giving them to algorithms. We're giving them to high-speed trading systems and things like that. So for, so given that, the durability or even the rise of anti-Semitism, again, in the face of a financial system that is increasingly being driven by, by robots and by automated systems, um, I think feels particularly relevant to to the point you were making earlier, which is Jews have just kind of like it's just been a useful stand-in for any kind of other um, that needs that needs to be vilified. Yeah, I mean, and, and not to make a point that has been made uh, compellingly in any number of places, but uh, to, to reiterate something like Shakespeare's anti-Semitism. Um, although, you know, there are people who also say that they, they read the play that Shakespeare was always uh, creating Shylock as a sympathetic figure. I mean, he has, he has the famous monologue where he says, you know, when you prick us, do we not bleed, where he kind of pleads for mm-hmm. his humanity. Um, right. But uh, regardless, the, the, the various forms of, of stereotypes that inform that play happen, as I said, 300 years after all the Jews had been exiled from England, that... Uh, and and to sort of link that point up with this fact that there is not a particular culture, there's not a particular population. There are a lot of machines that are running massive investment in banking these days, but that you don't even need a real thing to have this form mm-hmm. of discrimination. That and, and in fact, it seems in some ways like it actually helps to be so alienated from a population and to be so unfamiliar with the population uh, as to easily make them a target of, of this form of hatred. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's something that we like about like people as the enemy. They're so they're so accessible. People are so like you can point your finger at people who are who are doing bad things. Um, I am interested and concerned. I would even say that as our technology increasingly becomes the way in which systems work, is that we won't lay the problem at the system or the technology that's doing this. We will mm-hmm. lay it at the feet of people who are just convenient analogs to the problems that people are feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, in some ways, it's, it's profoundly an issue of agency that mm-hmm. um, where people feel like they're able to push back against uh, systems of power, power that they feel controlled by, uh, I think they will. And right. Uh, depending on on how how online communities organize themselves, how online communities uh, moderate their content, we uh, may see more or less of these forms of speech and radicalization in the upcoming years. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I think there's a Jewish community center feels somehow it's there. It's a physical space, and versus the high-speed trading algorithms that are driving efficiency decisions that are leading companies to offshore or create downward pressure on wages or whatever it is that is leading to a kind of 
stagnation or frustration or whatever or terror and this kind of like low grade terror all the time and in whatever communities I feel like is um it's it's harder to come to terms with that it's harder to kind of push back against that um and so you, yeah I mean I you know it's it's hard to kind of go through this really heavy subject and really a subject where there's almost no place to there's no way to place your foot right in this conversation and then come back to this question of moderation and how do mm-hmm. we you know, moderation of content, moderation of life is, it's also a worth, worthwhile thing to come back to. But um, this question of, you know, there's so much stuff coming after the shooting about fault and blame and things like that. And I'm not that interested in that in terms of should, is Facebook to blame or online chat rooms to blame is, is the, is the, you know, the amplify, you know, the online amplification of, of, violent and fringe thought to blame. Um, I don't know about blame, but it does feel like people could take a role in, in, in moderating these. I mean, literally moderating them in terms of, in terms of helping screen out some of the worst voices, but also moderating them in terms of trying to get them into a, uh, into a place of, of reason, not just rage. Yeah, well, I I have no no idea uh, how that uh, that seems workable, you know. That uh, yeah, right. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe in the ivory tower, it's just it's harder to see um, well, how to I, access yeah, those I mean, spaces. You know, I mean, we here we are on a digital platform, and it, you know, going through you know producing our own content for this space for for this online space. And, you know, we don't get moderated. I mean, we had to, we, we are, we're on Stitcher. If you'd like to find us on Stitcher, we had to be approved for that. iTunes approves us for our podcast to be published uh, through their platform. But, um, but those are sort of like, are we approved to be on the platform? I don't think there is an ongoing screening or moderation of our content on a weekly basis, uh, assuming we publish on a weekly basis. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I mean, it does feel like it. It does. It does put more um, responsibility on platforms, possibly even slowing things down. And I think that's maybe that's where we should end a little bit on this question of speed, <laughs> which I think is is going to be a subject of a podcast soon. <laughs> which yeah, is, I think uh, so. This, this question of speed, because I think a lot of the, the conversations we've always had about moderation and technology and how it, you know, what's viable in terms of, well, you know, we can't sit here and moderate all this stuff at the pace of the, at the speed of the internet and the speed of public discourse now. And I'm very interested, and it's almost like the, the acceptance of speed as an inherent good and an inevitable thing, I think is something that's worth examining in our uh in our next pod let's do it i think uh let's let's um you know uh hope that that uh, this what whatever we've just recorded shines some kind of light or understanding into the world um yeah yeah or at least doesn't doesn't add to the uh add further confusion yeah. um well thank you no no apocalypse in utopia this week we are going to dispense with that trope for um this it feels only apocalyptic um hopefully be feeling more hopeful uh next week yes on to speed yes on to speed all right well uh good luck to you sir um and i will uh talk to you soon all right talk to you next week i love you love you too man bye bye